This is Gliza for Classical Adventures for One, where I read classical work dramatically and discuss things about that work that I find interesting and want to share with my listeners. If that's something that you're into, stick around and let's talk about fictional books of the past. Today's dramatic reading is Chapter 7, where Alice visits a mad tea party. Having only read this book in its entirety for this podcast for the first time, let me tell you right now, this was the chapter that I was looking forward to the most. As you know by now, the Cheshire Cat is my favorite character, but the Mad Hatter comes as a very close second because of all the remakes that I watched where they made the Mad Hatter super attractive and interesting. Personally, this chapter did not disappoint, and I think I also really like how sassy the March Hare is. I'm very thankful for you guys who have listened to my dramatic reading of it. If you haven't, it's not too late. The link to it is below, and you can listen to me dramatically act through this chapter, or at least attempt to. Today's artworks are very close to my heart. It was done by no other than my very handsome and very talented husband, Michael. He does all kinds of talented things that I can't really match up to, but one of the things I know I love about him is his sort of absurd drawings. There's this drawing of his that is not allowed anywhere near me because it's just a bunch of mouth and teeth. It looks super surreal and cool, but it will give me nightmares if I wake up and the first thing I see is that picture. He doesn't have a channel for art stuff, but he does have a YouTube channel. In fact, he was one of the reasons why I started this podcast. I got jealous of him buying his mics and talking about starting his show. And I said to myself, man, I want to do that too. And that little jealousy started this little seed that turned into this podcast. If you're interested in video games and watching my cutie pie husband play video games, why don't you give him a little click and tell him I sent you? Now, it might not surprise some of you to know that I'm a big fan of Marvel movies with its spin-offs and sequels and movies being interconnected to one another. I'm not ashamed to say that I'm one of those people that really enjoyed the whole journey from Iron Man to Endgame. I also am one of the few people that really, really, really enjoyed the newer Star Wars movies with Kylo Ben, I mean Ren Solo, I mean Kylo Ren, being my favorite character of the series. What can I say? I just love a good character growth, anti-hero turned hero story. I also really enjoy revisiting my favorite worlds. I love sequels and spin-offs and remakes. I'm basically Hollywood's target audience and many people my age and older than me might hate me for it, but life's too short to not enjoy oneself. And I will enjoy every single remake that Disney puts out. Except maybe Mulan? I just need some Mushu and Shang in my life, you know? Having said all of that, This episode is dedicated to the much-loved sequel of Alice in Wonderland, Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There. Have you ever watched a sequel that blows the original movie out of the water? 
I think Through the Looking Glass was that sequel. I'd like to argue that Through the Looking Glass is actually better loved than Alice in Wonderland. In fact, it was probably due to Through the Looking Glass's popularity that even caused a lot of people to revisit and cherish Alice in Wonderland itself. It was the Winter Soldier to Captain America's The First Avenger, or the Godfather 2 to The Godfather to my non-MCE listeners. I loved this book so much that I even played with the idea of having bonus episodes of dramatic readings, but it's just so much and I don't know, maybe, we'll see. The themes of Through the Looking Glass and what Alice found there is pretty clear early on, and it focuses on two main ideas, chess and mirror images. According to Lenny from AliceInWonderland.net, during the six years since Charles wrote the Wonderland book, he had been teaching Alice Little and her sisters how to play chess. He made up stories that he had used to illustrate the moves of the pieces and the rules of the game. Several of these stories were used for his second Alice story. The early editions of the book starts off with a chessboard with chess pieces and a list of moves. My personal copy of the book also has this, but I'm not a very capable chess player, so I don't really understand a lot of what's going on in that first part. Jimmy Stamp from the SmithsonianMag.com wrote that the sequel to Alice's Adventures in Wonderland was designed to be a playable, albeit whimsical, chess problem. The whole basis for the novel's structure was based around a game of chess. It is clear though that Charles was not playing by the rules of chess as he does admit to taking some liberties with the game as you may read in the preface. However, it does not mean it's nonsensical. Just like Wonderland follows its own logic through the Looking Glasses chess game follows the logic based on Charles's story. Jimmy again says that it's clear that the story cannot be isolated as either a chess treatise or a children's story. It's both. The narrative abides by the logic of the game, and the game abides by the logic of the narrative. It's so hard to not gush about how awesome a writer Charles is when you see this kind of things that just blows you away. And this is just the beginning of Through the Looking Glass. As we've learned in a previous episode, the Wonderland world is definitely a lot more nonsensical, like a child's dream. But Through the Looking Glass, though still fantastical, definitely has a lot more in the way of logic and structure. I love that in the following editions of the book, Charles had to tell his readers how to pronounce the words that he made up because there is logic in his world. Just like in the first book, the sequel also contains an epigraph. It's a poem called A Child of Pure Unclouded Brow. And just reading it, you can tell this is going to be a much more serious book than the first time around. The author reminisces and somewhat mourns the loss of childhood of his child friend, I mentioned in earlier episodes that Charles and the Littles had a falling out, and though no one really knows what happened, I can't help but think about it when I read this poem. It remembers the golden afternoon and the fun that they had, and though the author is sad that it has gone, he says that at least they'll always have this fairy tale and their memories together. As I mentioned earlier, there's two main themes, the chess portion and the mirror portion. One of the things that I love about the opposite mirror theme 
is that Alice is expected to do the opposite of what she wants to do in order to achieve the goals that she wants to achieve. It applies even to the way she had to travel, at least in certain parts of the book. Instead of moving forward like she normally did, she had to move backward in order to reach the place that she wanted to reach. It's safe to say that this kind of wrong way around is a favorite of Charles. Lenny writes that Charles enjoys writing letters in mirror writing, drawing pictures that change when you flip them around, and he definitely liked to play his musical boxes backwards. Apparently, according to Melanie Borchers in A Linguistic Analysis of Lewis Carroll's poem, Jabberwocky, Charles had wanted to have at least a version of the book to be printed in reverse, with the exception of Jabberwocky. I don't know if it actually happened, but according to Lenny, Charles did have the original intention of just having several pages of the book be printed in reverse so the readers would have to hold them up to a mirror to read, but it was too expensive and troublesome. In the end, Charles just decided to have only the first stanza of Jabberwocky as being reversed. As for the art, I've mentioned before that Sir John Tenniel had to be convinced to work with Charles once more. And though he fought hard against it, Sir John eventually relented and worked with Charles. I can't help but imagine them as this prickly pair of partners, and it makes me smile because as much as Sir John complained about Charles, he knew that Charles respected him and his ideas. So much so that he had control over the contents of the actual book. My favorite story about this collaboration is how Sir John made Charles drop a whole chapter. And that chapter was missing for more than a hundred years. Here's the actual letter that he sent to Charles. My dear Dodson, I think that when the jump occurs in the railway scene, you might very well make Alice lay hold of the goat's beard as being the object nearest to her hand, instead of the old lady's hair. The jerk would naturally throw them together. Don't think me brutal, but I am bound to say that the wasp chapter doesn't interest me in the least, and that I can't see my way to a picture. If you want to shorten the book, I can't help thinking with all submission that this is your opportunity. In agony of haste, yours sincerely, J. Tenniel. Sir John also stated that he just can't draw a wasp in a wig. That it was altogether beyond the appliances of art. And so the most common view about why this chapter was dropped was because Sir John just didn't want to draw a picture of a wasp in a wig. So I made my husband draw a picture of a wasp in the wig. And I honestly liked it. When I said that this chapter was missing for more than a hundred years, I meant it. As Through the Looking Glass was first published in December 27, 1871, and The Wasp in the Wig was discovered in June 3, 1974. There are those who believe that the text that was discovered then was not really genuine, and honestly, the texts themselves were never really analyzed by checking the paper or the ink or the handwriting very closely. So we can never really be 100% sure. But in general, it's accepted by most that at least the texts are authentic. But you know what? Since I won't be reading through the looking glass for you listeners, I thought maybe I could read a part of the missing chapter out loud for you here. So here you have it. 
a dramatic reading of my favorite part of the missing chapter of Through the Looking Glass called A Wasp in a Wig. A curious idea came into Alice's head. Almost everyone she had met had repeated poetry to her, and she thought she would try if the wasp couldn't do it too. Would you mind saying it in rhyme? She asked very politely. It ain't what I'm used to, said the wasp. However, I'll try. Wait a bit. He was silent for a few moments, and then began again. When I was young, my ringlets waved and curled and crinkled on my head. And then they said, you should be shaved, and wear a yellow wig instead. But when I followed their advice, and they had noticed the effect, they said I did not look so nice, as they had ventured to expect. They said it did not fit, and so, it made me look extremely plain. But what was I to do, you know? My ringlets would not grow again. So now that I am old and gray, and all my hair is nearly gone, they take my wig from me and say, how can you put such rubbish on? And still whenever I appear, they hoot at me and call me pig. And that's why they do it, dear, because I wear a yellow wig. I'm very sorry for you, Alice said heartily. And I think if your wig fitted a little better, they wouldn't tease you quite so much. Your wig fits very well, the wasp murmured, looking at her with an expression of admiration. It's the shape of your head as does it. Your jaws ain't well shaped, though. I should think you couldn't bite well. Alice began with a little scream of laughing, which she turned into a cough as well as she could. At last, she managed to say gravely, I can bite anything I want. Not with a mouth as small as that, the wasp persisted. If you was a fighting, now, could you get hold of the other one by the back of the neck? I'm afraid not, said Alice. Well, that's because your jaws are too short, the wasp went on. But the top of your head is nice and round. He took off his own wig as he spoke and stretched out one claw towards Alice, as if he wished to do the same for her but she kept out of reach and would not take the hint. So he went on with his criticisms. Then your eyes, they're too much in front, no doubt. One would have done as well as two, if you must have them so close. Alice did not like having so many personal remarks made on her, and as the wasp had quite recovered his spirits and was getting very talkative, she thought she might safely leave him. I think I must be going on now, she said. Goodbye. Goodbye and thank ye, said the wasp, and Alice tripped down the hill again, quite pleased that she had gone back and given a few minutes to making the poor old creature comfortable. I want to thank Lenny again for allowing me to use the heavy lifting that he did for his website and researching all of these interesting things that I've shared with you. Check out the link below for the resources that I've used for this discussion, and hey, Thank you for giving this girl a few minutes of your time to listen. It sure made me feel comfortable. And as I sign off, here's the last line of Through the Looking Glass. Life, what is it but a dream? Definitely thank you guys for joining me on this adventure. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, 
Please remember to subscribe, like, and share if you found this episode interesting. I would love to hear from you, so please leave a comment below if you have anything that you want me to know or tips to improve on. If you're listening to it anywhere else, please subscribe, like, and share it to people you think might like it anyway. And you can also email me at classicalgliza at gmail.com. Again, I'm Gliza, and this has been Classical Adventures for One. See you on the next adventure. <laughs>